The Lord be with you. Let us pray from our second communion hymn today. Lord, when your glory I shall see and taste your kingdom's pleasure, your blood my royal robe shall be, my joy beyond all measure. When I appear before your throne, your righteousness shall be my crown. With these I need not hide me. And there in garments richly wrought, as your own bride, shall we be brought to stand in joy beside you. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. A couple of quick announcements there. Um, midweek Lent services continuing the, this week with service at 7 and uh, soup supper at 6. Uh, Ash Wednesday kind of stands apart. Uh, if you're a, a Wednesday Lenten worship regular, the Ash Wednesday service has its own set of readings. And then all the other six uh, Wednesday or five Wednesdays of Lent are usually assigned a particular theme. And this is a very, very delicate process with how the Lord inspires this. Uh, we basically sit around and decide, hey, what do we want to preach on for five? Well, I don't know. What do you want to preach on? We go around. What have we not done in a while? And this year we're like, let's, let's just go through the passion narrative according to John. So we kind of broke it down into five weeks and slowly, because usually what, what happens to us on Good Friday is you, you're, I mean, you're already in Holy Week, your mind's toward Easter, and then you go to Good Friday service and you hear the reading, and it's a long reading. And there's a lot of different, you get the, you get the passion from a four different gospel perspective, and maybe questions come up or thoughts. And you, don't, you just don't get to reflect on it maybe as, as long as you would like to. So um, this will allow us to slow down on the gospel, on the passion narrative of, of John, and, um, and, and take it week by week. There are a few verses at a time during the season of Lent. So that's our theme. Uh, and also, uh, as we've mentioned last week, the midweek or uh, the uh, Lenten devotions that the pastors wrote, um, if you haven't picked one of those up, you can get at the Welcome Center, focusing on the, the penitential psalms and b- breaking down those psalms like by a couple of verses at a time and talking about repentance in general. So hopefully you find those helpful. And any feedback you have on those will help be helpful too, because frankly, if, if everyone says, you know what, I just didn't read it and we don't really care about it, and like, that's also helpful feedback because it did take time to write it. So if no one's going to read it, then it's nice to know that for next time. But if everyone appreciated it, they're valuing it, then it's certainly worth uh, worthwhile endeavor. So let, please let us know how, how you feel about those. Theology on Tap is uh, this Wednesday after the midweek services. We're trying to accommodate people's travel uh, be sensitive to people's traveling and everything. So midweek service, about 7, uh, ends around 7.45 or so. And so we'll get started shortly after that with Theology on Tap. Uh, this, this week we'll be looking at uh, particular, particularly the worldview of Islam, and, um, which, which uh, uh, Adam Francisco's specialty is, is, that's one of his special areas is Islam. So if you're interested in learning more about the Islam worldview and, and, and how we can confess into that as Christians, this would be a good week to jump into that. That's uh, approximately eight o'clock this Wednesday. Um, if your child is interested in, the, in pre, uh, having the pre-confirmation catechesis and communion, please speak with me. We'll be starting that class uh, soon. And we need, we need volunteers for our soup suppers and also for Feed the Need, so you can see your uh, week at a glance, and also sign-up sheets in the narthex. Lots of announcements there. The alternative is you could be in a church with nothing going on, and that's no fun, so endure. Uh, the, hymn I, the, the hymn that I just prayed from was a helpful picture because in the context of 
uh, as we're studying the, the, the death and burial of Jesus today in the, in the midst of the crucifixion, this is one of the well-known Lenten hymns by a well-known Lutheran hymn writer, Paul Gerhard, who has a, just a really helpful view of, of justification, like a, us being, being declared righteous for the sake of Christ alone. So in this, as he says, Lord, when your glory I shall see and taste your kingdom's pleasure. So when, I, when I'm in heaven, after I die, your blood, my royal robe shall be. So I'll be covered in, in your blood. And then that will be my joy, my joy beyond all measure. When I appear before your throne, and that's a scary picture. To stand before the throne of God as a sinner is not a, is not a place you want to be. Because like when you look at the Old Testament, and, and really this is often portrayed in movies, um, probably um, inaccurately, but like the, um, the movie 300 comes to mind, or some of these that are portraying like, like early, maybe uh, early centuries and in the, in the AD, but also even like from 1000 BC all the way up, you have these empires that are, the kings were just notoriously evil and violent. So if you go before the king, like if you look at him wrong, you're dead. If, you're, if it's something is suggested about you that, that you did something wrong, you're dead. Like there's nothing is... You increase your chances of not being destroyed by just not being around the king. So being in the presence at the throne of the king as a sinner is not good. But then the hymn says, when I appear before your throne, your righteousness shall be my crown. That's this great, this sweet swap, as Luther called it. So the righteousness, the holy, the right standing before God, the holiness of God is given to us. Because all of our sin was taken off of us and put upon him. So this swap that happens, that, that allows us to stand in the presence of God with, uh, with not fear, but, but joy. Knowing that I was, I was never here because I was so good or because I was so dedicated or faithful or sincere. Or add in whatever, whatever word in there. Um, it's not about me. I'm able to stand in the Lord's presence and not be destroyed because Jesus has died for me, period. And therefore, I need not hide. With these, I need not hide me, which is a weird way of saying it, but they had to get the rhyme, the, the rhyme scheme, I suppose. You know, um, when, I'm, when I'm wearing the Lord's righteousness, I don't need to hide from God like Adam and Eve did in the garden because I'm wearing his holiness. I'm good. Uh, all right, so today, Luke 20, uh, 23, we're going to finish Luke 23 today, hopefully. And then that gets into Luke 24, which is the resurrection. So uh, we, last week, we, we kind of quickly moved through arguably the, the high point of Luke. I think Luke 20, the, the crucifixion, Luke 23 and 24, is what everything is driving toward. Um, so it's good to slow down and talk about it a, a little bit, but the, there's a couple of things that I didn't get to spend as much time on last, last week as I wanted to. Um, first, as you're, I put on your handout, this distinction between the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. We talked about it a little bit regarding like Peter's expectation that, that the Lord Jesus was going to be a powerful Messiah and the idea of Jesus dying didn't really click with with his perspective of what a savior should be doing. So the, 
so when the, the thief on the cross also saying, save yourself and us, like if you have all this power, if you are God, you'll be, you'll be certainly using it to save yourself and us. So sinful flesh wants Jesus in glory and off of the cross. And in contrast, we confess the theology of the cross. The love of Jesus is seen not in him saving us on our terms, but his love is seen on the cross. We can't emphasize this enough. And I would argue this is one of the primary places that the devil tries to attack us. And it is a teaching of the devil. And we'll see this actually next week. The gospel lesson for next week is from Mark. It's Mark's account of the confession of Peter. You are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus says, uh, good job. And then Jesus says, the son of man must suffer many things and die. And then Peter says, no. And then Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. So this idea of wanting Jesus not on the cross is exact. So Jesus is, or, or the devil is totally cool have, having Jesus around and having people believing in Jesus and, and structuring your life around Jesus, as long as it's not a Jesus whose primary way of saving us is on the cross. So uh, the theology of cross says the most important thing is Jesus on the cross. And, and we understand, in fact, everything else because of that. Uh, there's a, I have on here this, a reference to Carl Truman. So this, this article from, um, what is this? First Things. So it's a, one of these theological journals that, um, that we read to see what's happening in, across, across Christianity. But um, so apparently, Pastor Wolf Mueller, Brian, you know from theology, or lay, lay Theology Conference last year, he was at like a First Things conference and he asked Carl Truman. So Carl Truman wrote the book, um, uh, not Strange New World. He wrote Strange New World, but what's the, the original from Carl Truman that's got so much? Yes. So Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. In fact, a little plug here. We'll be talking about his works, uh, Strange New World, Carl Truman's Strange New World and Theology on Tap in future months. Um, but so Carl Truman's well-known, I think he's like Presbyterian or somewhere in the Reformed tradition. And he was presenting and, and Wolf Mueller asked him, what did, what, did the, what did Lutheran, what did confessional Lutherans have that maybe we're not even aware of that broader Christianity like can benefit from? So and I think those excellent questions. So asking a, asking a well-known theologian who has a pretty good perspective, kind of like this C.S. Lewis-esque perspective of, of, of broader Christianity. And so when you look at individual denominations, you're able to say, oh, they're really good at this, they're really good at that. But us being in the denomination might not realize some of these things that we, that we enjoy or that we just kind of take for granted. Um, and he said he gave him three answers. One was simply the, being a confessional church. That is, we've got our, our confessions, our the documents that, that clearly say, this is what we believe. This is what the scripture says. Uh, this is, what, this is what, how we interpret this. And there's a truth there. There's a right and a wrong. Um, and we're clear about it. In an age where truth is suspect and everyone's kind of like, Scared to say there's any right or wrong. So, but also highlighting the, the point is that this, this, we're building upon the wisdom of the church who has come before us. It's not like we're making this thing up, but there's a reason why the historic church has interpreted the scriptures this way. That leads into we, our word of being conservative. 
So whatever your preconceived notion of, oh, we're conservative, whatever you think that means, you probably associate it with a variety of different like ideologies or whatever, but the idea, the, main, the driving idea behind conservative, being a conservative means there is something that came before me that's worth conserving and pass on to the next generation. Versus our, the, the, the postmodern progressive idea of today is that anything that came before us is necessarily bad. There's no wisdom to be had because we're evolving. So the very idea of evolution necessitates that every day that we're moving forward is, is whatever we are, wherever we are now, whatever philosophy our culture accepts is necessarily superior because that's how evolution works. So to look backwards is unhelpful and archaic and necessarily, and then they'll attach all the labels to it, racist or whatever. Um, so uh, to actually say, no, no, there's, there are things worth conserving and they're clearly laid out for us in the scriptures and we, and we have this bold confession that we make as, as Christians in a time when the world is gonna toss to and fro by the whims of the ages, we, we can uh, grab a hold of the certainty of God's word. Uh, second is the, the two kingdoms doctrine. So having this clear distinction between the heavenly kingdom and the earthly kingdom, the kingdom of the left and the kingdom of the right. So the God's, God is working through the church and it, God is working through the state, but he does it in different ways. He doesn't use the sword in the church, nor does he use the gospel in the state. And we, if we lose that distinction, we actually lose both the church and the state. Because if you, if you bring the sword into the church, we end up with like the, the, the killing that's happened. Like, I mean, the, the maybe historical example of when the, 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 discover, the guys who discovered America come over and they find all these like lo, natives who can't speak their language and then tell them to believe in Jesus and they, they don't know what he's saying and they, and they just kill them. Like, say you believe in Jesus or else kind of a thing. Um, but the gospel never comes by force. The sword has no place in the church. And also, though, in the state, the gospel, if the gospel prevails, oh, we should just be more forgiving and never punish wrongdoers. Then we lose order. So it's per totally fine within the left-hand kingdom to actually forgive. We should, in fact, as Christians, forgive, especially our enemies. But... There's also a place for punishment for wrongdoing. So we can, the, the ex Luther said, the executioner can simultaneously be, a for, be forgiving someone and be confessing the gospel to the guy on the way to the hangman's noose, right? So he can be confessing the gospel, having this clarity of what forgiveness is, and yet there are still temporal earthly consequences for our, for our sins. So that's having a distinction in left and right hand kingdom. Also, uh, uh, tremendously helpful for soldiers, for government workers, and, and all the rest. But third, the main the reason I brought this up, uh, and the main one, is confessional Lutheranism can offer today's church a powerful understanding of the suffering of the church. Luther famously argued that the true theologian should be a theologian of the cross, placing the incarnation at the center of revelation. God reveals himself under opposites, his glory is hidden in flesh, his power in the weakness of the cross, his triumph over death and the apparent triumph of death over Christ. So this, this flip that happens in the theology of the cross where you've got this, the picture of total human weakness and Jesus being beaten and dying is the very thing by which he destroys the power of death. So the Lord who has all this power comes to us in weakness and hides himself 
under opposites, not coming in the glory that we might expect or desire. <clears throat> so with that, then there's an expectation of suffering. Since they sort of suffering in our Lord, we, ha- we recognize a suffering in this world. So when, uh, when, when Christian in, in faces suffering, it's a, an, an, an inevitability because of our sinfulness and this being in this sinful world. But it does not mean that like you didn't do something right, like you didn't pray the right prayer, like if you just believe more firmly in your heart, then God would like prevent any harm to ever come to you. Uh, that's not the theology of the cross. The theology of the cross says Jesus, we'll say God works good through suffering. And that's seen on the cross. He works the greatest good through the greatest suffering. And so then when I face suffering in my own life, I can see that God is actually working through this. He's allowed this for whatever reason, because um, he could have stopped it, but he's allowed this. It doesn't mean that he, he doesn't love me because he never pointed me to my life as evidence for his love. He's pointed me to the cross as evidence for his love. So his love is sure and certain. So when I face suffering, love isn't in question. I know that he loves me. And now he also, I know that he's going to be working through the suffering for good. So that's the theology of, of the cross. Rather than seeing if I'm, if I'm really Christian and if God really exists, and I, if I pray the right prayer and do the right thing, then, then God's going to bless me, which is the teaching of all of the like, mainstream uh, like televangelists. That if you'll just believe firmly in your heart, then all of a sudden all your cancer is going to go away and you'll get the job and everything will line up and everything will go beautifully for you. Well, I mean, the argument could be made that um, when everything is going beautifully for you, that's exactly what the devil wants. Because when your hands are full of money, you don't need a Bible. When When your body is totally healthy, you're not thinking about your death. So when everything is going perfectly in this life, why do I need to think about the spiritual realm? So we're able to understand suffering as being reminded that, hey, this is not eternal. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Our gospel lesson from Ash Wednesday. So that's the theology of the cross, and it's a uniquely... I would say it's not only Lutheran, but definitely it's, a, it's one of Luther's big things and he gave it a lot of attention and it certainly was the, a beating, one of the beating forces in the Reformation and all of Luther's teaching is this ongoing focus on the cross and nothing else, everything else gets its meaning and power from that starting point. Uh, any questions on theology of the cross? Very, the theology of glory is very prevalent in on like media and usually how Christianity is is falsely portrayed in movies. For example, as the as the person who's 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 trying to figure this thing out of like I'm a Christian and therefore I sh- good things should be happening to me. We got three questions. Oh. Harvey first, yeah. It's certainly more joyful when he works through other people's suffering to benefit me. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. I mean, this is the, we've talked about this before, how, well, even, even now, 
um, as as um, like being one of the advantages of being in a congregation. So. Um, the congregation, we get together, we, we are in fellowship around the common altar. Um, so what unites us is not that we are all, are all like best friends. In fact, most of us might have nothing in common because um, we're all very different. The body is made up of many members with many different gifts and so on and so forth. What unites us is the altar, the confession of who Jesus is and what he gives to us. And when you're, when you're united on that point, then nothing else I mean, everything else doesn't really matter as much. So we're, we're united on the main thing, and then we're able to actually rejoice in the, the differences of each, of each of us. And though, as those who are united at an altar in a congregation in this body of Christ, we're also able to help each other in our weaknesses. So like one of the things that we do here, like we have the meal train. So when, when someone's suffering, like, the, um, like right now the, the Goldbecks, um, with, with Aiden still being in the children's hospital in Chicago. I mean, for us, this is like back in November. You probably heard about it. He's in the prayers. Like, you're not thinking. They, like, Betsy and Rob haven't slept in the same bed since November because one of them is always at the hospital. One of them is at home with the other kids. They're always switching back and forth, totally living like hand to mouth in a way. And guess, so this congregation and the school, nonstop, like food just keeps coming. So like that, having, relieving that little thing at, at home, um, being able to give, having an opportunity to show love and to serve our neighbor in that situation. So as terrible as the situation is, I mean, certainly God's working through that in some way that we can't understand to bring strength in that family in some way, but also for us to be thankful for what we have, uh, to, to have this opportunity to serve our neighbor. Great, good, good point, Harvey. Yeah. I, just, I, was, I just wanted to say that like uh, the criminal on the cross with Jesus verses 40 through 43 sums that up so beautifully. I mean, as far as the, the differences between the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. Yeah. It's just those, those words are just... Where you want one, one thief on the cross demanding vending, vending machine Jesus to act according to his wishes. And if you're really God, then give me what, I'm, what I want now. Save yourself and us. And the other guy is saying, look, I, I deserve what I'm getting, but I'm looking to you in the midst of my suffering. Great. Yeah, good point. Is there one more over here somewhere? I had another hand. No? All right. Uh, good. So that's uh, one, one more point there in, uh, on your handout regarding the temple tearing or the, the curtain in the temple. So as you might recall, uh, you, had the, you had the tabernacle in the wilderness, and this is where God had... He had effectively put his presence. So God is everywhere, right? Omnipresent. And yet he is not everywhere for the same reasons. So God makes himself, so if, if you wanted to know that you're in the presence of God for his mercy, like for us here, if you want to know that, that Jesus forgives you, Jesus forgives you wherever you are, but he specifically is delivering forgiveness to you, even directly into your mouth here. So you know, okay, while Jesus is everywhere, he makes himself present in a unique way in his church. 
And in the tabernacle as well, he was making himself present there. He had the Ark of the Covenant. And whenever Moses would go in to talk to God, he would come out glowing radioactively, you know, he had to veil his face and all that. So the presence of God is there in the temple. And it, when, they, when they built the temple, you have like the most holy place where no one could go. And like the, when the one priest, the, the, the high priest would go in there once a year for like one festival to do one sacrifice. So he'd take the blood and, and throw it all over the altar. And apparently they'd go in and they'd tie like a rope to the guy's leg. Because if he goes in and, and he's struck dead, they got to pull him back out of there. And you don't want to go in there and get him out of there because then you'll get struck dead too. So we'll put a, tie a string to his foot. And <laughs> Can you imagine? All right, guys, got the rope on. I guess here we go. Like having that even as a, it's like when, if, if you got on like a Southwest Airlines, as you're getting on, they hand you a parachute, you know, just in case. Right. What, what, why do I need this? Don't worry about it, but just in case. <laughs> That's the same idea. Um, well, so the high priest would go in to do the sacrifice that, the, to, for, the, for all the people, just once a year. The timing is helpful here. So you have the, that sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, that's happening in the most holy place was ultimately pointing to the sacrifice that's happening right now, like in the midst of it. Is Jesus actually being the sacrifice for the sins of the world, right? The other thing is, if you wanted to be in the presence of God, you had to go to, I mean, the located presence of God for his mercy, you would go to the temple, and there were limitations of where you could go. Some people had to stay in the outer courtyard, but you could get incrementally closer depending on certain things. So, uh, but you still couldn't go into the most holy place. You couldn't be in the, in the immediate presence of God because of your sin and so forth. And now with Jesus dying on the cross, the temple curtain tears from top to bottom. So it's not, it was his idea, not ours. And now the presence of God, it's like, it's like he, he's out. Not that he was ever like in captivity, but it does, he does break out. So Jesus is the new temple, like his, he calls himself. His, his body is the, the new temple. But then that same presence, though, that was in the temple is no longer limited to that space. But now he is, he's put his presence with us. So he puts his name in the temple, which is where he said, where I put my name, there I will dwell. So he puts his name in the temple and there his presence is. But now in the New Testament church, where does he put his name? On us. So that same presence that like you had to be super duper special and have a string tied to your foot or whatever to get into uh, in the Old Testament, now that presence is delivered to us in holy baptism to be in that same, that same presence of God, right? Also, he makes himself present in the Lord's Supper. This is my body, this is my blood. It's for our forgiveness, delivered to us. So the presence going out into the, into the world. Um, so it's just interesting to see that distinction. Also, the, the, there's no longer need for a mediator in the same way as there was in the Old Testament. So you have this, with, a, with the, having the high priest have to go in as a mediator, what Jesus is, like he is the one. So now I don't need a mediator, he comes directly to me. So a quote there from uh, Hebrews 9. speaks directly to this. Hebrews 9, verse 11. 
But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of his, this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of the goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if there is sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls, and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to, to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So Hebrews draws that connection for us with him going into the high priest and act, uh, the, the, high, the most holy place and actually being the sacrifice for us. All right, any, any wrap-up questions there on the crucifixion? Tom. You know, that's a good question. I didn't, I didn't read anything on that, on that in particular. Because really, when you're, when, like when you're reading the commentaries on this, that everything is so focused on the cross. And then it's, it's really, you start, you start getting hungry for the resurrection. So it's funny, this is a common theme in all that. They, they, they get on the last words of Jesus, and after he dies, we want to get to the resurrection. And then I, I never even reflected on that. Yeah, what, what, what is the, the, the Jewish practice? Um, or the rationale. Well, there's an earthquake, so they probably just, I'm mean, just a total guess. It's, it, would, it would make sense for them to blame the, some earthquake, because there was earthquakes were happening that day. They blamed the earthquakes, or they replaced the, the curtain. That's kind of a weird thing. Like, it, like in the, when we have the Lord's Supper, like, it is the body and blood of Christ. But our confession of it is that it's the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That is, it's not the body and blood of Christ for me to take home and worship. It's not the body and blood of Christ for me to, for me to bow down and worship in the chancel or in the sacristy area, but it is the body and blood of Christ, right? Um, so there's a way that it's not, it's, there's not a mystery around it, like, like it's a magical presence that if, the, if this body and blood of Christ are gonna somehow like have, have some kind of, um, magical power within itself. Since we're in the back room, those of you who serve as sacrist, sacristans, like, no, it's just a, we just have this bottle of wine and we pour it into a glass and we walk, and like, just blood, it's just not blood of Jesus, it's just wine. So the, the, and that way the veil is, the veil has been torn and we're not like, we're not expecting any kind of magic to come from Benny's, right? It's just like this wine, it's poured, it's poured into it. What makes it, what makes it, significant is the word, the institution of our Lord and what he is delivering through it. Now, in contrast, if I'm in the temple and the most holy place has this very clear, um, like, I won't say magical, but like, you gotta, you gotta think that there was, if they're tying ropes to guys' legs, they're concerned about what's happening back there. So when the curtain gets torn in two and you gotta replace it, this is kind of a weird thing. It's like, how, how close can you get to that thing, right? Because remember in the Old Testament, when they're carrying the ark from point A to point B, and it like, the guy trips on a stick, and he, somebody reaches up and, oh no, the altar, I better stop it. And then he dies immediately, right? So when you got that kind of a history surrounding the ark, then when it's just sitting out there, and you got to put the, a new curtain up, I mean, I'd be raising all kinds of questions at a minimum. So I don't have any answers there. Just, yeah, what? 
Yeah, the uh, that's right, because Indiana Jones buried it. <laughs> but then, the, and then when the destruction happens in in seventy, the whole thing kind of goes away anyway. And then we have a all Judaism is replaced with a this kind of a different. It's a non-sacrificial Judaism we have now, like what's still practiced today. Is there another question? Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, we don't even need to try to, like, as if we're trying to refute someone making the assertion that, oh, what really happened was the disciples climbed up there and, and, and cut it. And, and like, no, no one, it seems like, I don't think anyone was making that claim. Um, but yeah, it is further testimony to this being a divine thing and, there's, and, it, and therefore has significance. Anything else? Yes. Yeah, great point. The, the division that occurred at the fall into sin, because they, they were in harmony with Adam and Eve being in harmony with God, walking together in the garden. And then when sin entered, there was this division between God and man that was such that they couldn't, we couldn't be in his presence without just being destroyed. And so for our good, like, so for their good, they were moved from the garden. Um, and then also they had the most holy place. But now the Lord, having, having died for us, has brought reconciliation with the Father. Yeah, that's good. And so now there's also no question of like how he feels about me going back to the cross. I know how he feels about me because Jesus died and I've been reconciled to him. Yes, sir. It was interesting when they when they were when they were trying to do renovations. So much money was brought that they couldn't. Um, they had to some. They had to tell them to stop bringing their money. So we had that problem. That also uh, would speed things along. I think. <laughs> uh, good. Some of the, it was. It's also helpful when God tells you in some cases what to do. Build a build a table and cover it with gold. 
Not for debate, because we'd be like, gold, come on. How about like, you know, brass? It's cheaper. Like, nope, God said gold. Makes it, <laughs> makes it quicker. So if God would be like, carpet or tile? God's like, tile, carpet, whatever. It makes it, speeds up the process a bit, you know? <laughs> All right, any more? All right, let's look at uh, the burial of Jesus and get into another controversial topic. Uh, verse, so in, let's see, verse, let me read it. So starting at verse 46, Jesus calling out in a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Which is already, um, when, when someone's dying, they rarely have the energy to shout, to have a loud voice. Um, especially when you're dying in the way that Jesus is dying here. The total fatigue and the suffocation that's occurring, like the ability to shout isn't there unless he's actually dying on his own accord. So just again, reminding us of that point. He lays down his life on his own. It's not being taken from him. He could have stopped this anywhere along the way, um, but he lays, it on, he lays it down on his own accord. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. So that word innocent is the same word for righteous, so having right standing before God. Uh, so even a Gentile there at the, at the cross recognizing this, in contrast to all the, the crowd of Jews. Now, and they're referenced here, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. Which is, so the, there seems to be multiple reasons for potential rationales for why they were doing this. Um, but the, the most, one is maybe like an anger that, that now even this Gentile is, is taking his side. Is the, the Gentiles are even being pulled into this um, false belief in Jesus and the frustration of that. But the, I think the more convincing argument was just this uh, sorrow and, and we'd say maybe even repentance, not repentance toward uh, forgiveness and faith, but more of a recognition that what we did was wrong. So they had been kind of gathered around this, caught up in the hype. Um, and then like in the midst, like the, this, the, um, they, were, they were being sucked into this energy of this evil moment. And then once he died, it just kind of all went away. This anticlimactic, wow, we just, we just killed that guy and he was innocent and we kind of all knew it. And that guy over there even knew it. And so that it's like, it just started to dawn on them, the evil that they had done. That's, so that's not believing that Jesus is actually rising from the dead because in their minds, it's just some random guy who died, right? But the, I mean, the fact that he even died is evidence that he was just a guy. Even if he was claiming to be the Messiah, uh, which they kind of know he, he wasn't even making the kind of claims that they were accusing him of making. And then they just let him, they let him die in this brutal way and they just felt terrible, potentially. But I thought that was a convincing rationale for why they went home beating their breasts. Uh, and, and all his acquaintances and the women, they're gonna, they're, they become now a key feature and they've been a key feature for Luke since the beginning of Luke's gospel because Luke, when he, sets off, when he starts off the gospel, he says, hey, I've talked to a bunch of eyewitnesses um, and I put together this story 
based on the eyewitness testimony. So at, the entire work, the 24 chapters of Luke, is irrelevant unless it's actually true that he, that he rose from the dead. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, the rest of the book is just like, I don't know, unimportant advice. Maybe some of it's like helpful moral guidance in some areas, maybe. But really, it's all about Jesus rising from the dead. So the most important witnesses are those who saw Jesus's body go into the, go into the grave and then saw him alive three days later. So the witnesses now, that these women get a lot of attention for the remainder of the, the gospel. Uh, the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So they, they, saw him, they saw him dead. And then verse 50, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. So now we get Joseph on the bookends of Jesus's life. Not the same Joseph. Uh, in the town of, from the town of Arimathea, he was a member of the council, so the Sanhedrin, all the guys that were like in the leading voice against Jesus, wanting him crucified. So Joseph was of that crew, and yet he was a, as it says, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. So maybe he, was, he just cast a dissenting vote, or, or he, maybe he wasn't even there, because remember the, a lot of the trials that were taking place were kind of sketchy, happening at night, and maybe they, they knew that Joseph was going to be pro-Jesus, and maybe he'd been talking about it, because remember, they've been talking about killing Jesus for a while, and so every time I come up, Joseph would be like, I don't know, guys, so when you know you're going to have a secret meeting to, to decide to vote to kill Jesus, you don't invite Joseph, right, if you want it to be, it's more productive that way, consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. That's an interesting phrase in Luke too, because do you remember, again, going back to the beginning of Luke, who else was good and righteous and looking for the kingdom of God? Think back into the temple. Who? Simeon. Simeon. Who else? Anna. And also uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah. So you get these snapshots of faithful Israelites waiting for, the, waiting for the promised Messiah. And so we can kind of understand Joseph in that same club, along with Simeon and Anna, Elizabeth and Zechariah. This, this man went to Pilate. So you don't just go to Pilate, right? Like even in our democratic world, have you actually, have you tried to call your local governor, governance before? Like to try to talk to anybody, you're on hold forever. You actually don't, you never get through. Um, so you don't just walk up to Pilate unless what? You're really connected. So he's pretty high up. So he had his position in the Sanhedrin must have given him some special access to Pilate. And he goes and he asks for the body of Jesus. Because if he doesn't get the body of Jesus, then the body goes into a criminal's grave, just kind of cast in with all the others. So he's even showing more high, high regard for the body of Jesus. Um, let's take our time here. Then he took it down to keep the law of, uh, from Deuteronomy 21, so the body's not hanging up there on the Sabbath. He took the body down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, which is a common practice of the, of the day. Uh, to anoint the dead in this way, wrapped in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. So just, and that was the same kind of description given to the cult when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. 
Remember that it was, he rode in on a colt on which no one had ridden. So it's fresh grave then for Jesus. Um, the, the grave is like this, the, the way they, they, likely the kind of tomb that's cut into the side of the rock or kind of a hole that's already there. And they, and they make these like divots in the ground in which you can roll a, um, a large stone that, that can be rolled. And they can roll it in front of the stone so that what? So the animals don't get in and uh, eat it and, and all that. Um, it would have had to be moved by multiple people. What's nice about when you've got large stones and large, like these large graves, that kind of stuff is still, you can still see it. You can go over in Jerusalem and, and see the similar type uh, sites. Um, so, but then they bury his body. So then my, one of the questions I have is uh, note, note that and how the body of Jesus is buried. And how are we to think about burials and cremations today? So what you want to do is never bring up controversial topics when you've got like two minutes left in Bible study. Um, this will force me to be concise, I guess. Um, so we, his body is buried reverently and they take great care. Um, and we can look at it in hindsight, like the body, we, we know we're going to see it again. So we, when we put the body in the ground, it's because God, the Lord created this body he redeemed this body, and he's going to raise this body from the ground. Um, so we, we, we're very, when the body dies, or when a person dies and the spirit is released from the body, we don't just say, well, that's just an empty shell. That's not grandma. That's just an empty shell. I've heard that often. No, that's grandma, still. So grandma's body is still grandma, and grandma's spirit is with Jesus, but it's not, it's not a shell. That kind of diminishes its value. Um, because she still needs it. God's going to give it back to her, perfected. So we're going to reverently treat the body still. So we, we reverently put the body in the ground. Um, so the, um, to kind of get to the, the point, historically, the, the Old Testament Israelites were always burying the body. In fact, they took great lengths. If you remember, I can't remember if it's Sarah. Like remember how we're all, they're always moving around and uh, the tribes of Israel. And, but like, whenever somebody would die, they'd like, they have the body there. So it'd say, they took the bones back. So when you're traveling, you have your luggage, your kid's luggage and a casket, right? You're dragging it because it's so important to get the body back into where the rest of the relatives are buried. Um, and it, as we fast forward in history, it was only those who were, who were not believing in a resurrection. So remember, with the resurrection, the teaching in the resurrection goes all the way back. Job talks about, with my eyes, I shall see the Lord. Um, so the, the Israelites are always holding this, to this teaching of a resurrection. And um, those who, who would say, well, you know what? If, if you believe in a resurrection, let's see if your guide can resurrect this. And they would start to intentionally burn people. So you burn pagans. You also burn witches. <laughs> A very limited audience for that joke. Uh, but you, so you don't give Christian burial to those who won't be rising again. You, so the, the first century uh, martyrs were often burned by the Romans to emphasize, hey, I know you believe that your body's going to rise again from the dead. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll show you and I'll burn you. Or they burned heretics at the stake, like in the, even at the time of the Reformation. You have people being burned to kind of emphasize that you're not getting, you're not getting what the Christians get. Okay. Um, 
So what we have in the scriptures and in, and in history of the church is not a, not a prescription of, of what to do with our dead. It doesn't say you, sh- you have to bury your dead in a particular way, um, and nor does it say not to, not to burn our dead via cremation or however you want to go at it. Um, but we do simply have the, the example of the biblical testimony of what they've done with their dead and why. Because frankly, the body returns to the dust. That was the curse of, the, the, the curse of, the, of Genesis 3 is that the, the body will return to the dust from whence it came. Um, and then you got people who die in fires and explosions or die at sea and bodies are, are, are you know, end up in a lot of different can, can die in a lot of different ways. Our confession is simply that we know God's going to resurrect this body from the dust. We'll decompose, return back to the dust, and the Lord's going to resurrect this body. But um, there is wisdom, and when we, when we reverently treat the body, we put the body in the ground, we, we know that, okay, this, like you can go to the cemetery and say, this is where my, where my loved one is buried, and I will see him again or her again, Okay. You can still do that if it's a if it's a cremated with the cremains of an individual, and you bury the cremains. So we discourage people from uh, scattering ashes because typically those who scatter the ashes make the confession that when we die, we become back. We we, we kind of become one with the universe, one with nature. Um, but you might not, you can, maybe you've, you're someone who scattered the ashes before and you obviously weren't making that confession. That's fine. And, and you can go, you can enter into, you can enter into a cremation um, without, you're not, you're not trying to like, to, to shame the body or, or say that you, you don't believe in the resurrection. So we, in our context, are, not, are no longer making that confession when it comes to a cremation. That was the case maybe at the time of the Reformation. It was the case maybe in the time of the early church. Um, if you personally think I'm going to cremate the body as a confession that the resurrection does not occur, then I would, occur, I would discourage you from doing that, right? Um, but, but we do have, we have, we have example in the scriptures and then we're given freedom and we just have to act, kind of act, um, act with the wisdom that we, the wisdom that we have. Um, is that helpful? I hit that very quickly. Any questions on that or comments? You had a hand, Krista? There's some people that, like, this buddy I know, that they have to take the ashes and they're going to have to bury them in another country. Mm-hmm. They can't take the body over there. They need the ashes. Right. Yeah, there's plenty of reason for it, right? And, um, and by the time, like, Abraham's dragging Sarah back to wherever she was buried, her body had probably decomposed substantially back to some sort of force. So, the, the, again, the, the, confet- the, the primary driving point here is that this body, this person who died, we will see them again. And so uh, in between now and then, it's especially helpful for us to know where they are and be reminded that they didn't just become one with creation. They're not, they're not one with creation. Their body is in the ground. The Lord's going to raise their body from the dead. Um, and now we, and our, we have lots of practical considerations these days from cost to having to bring the body back to across overseas and so forth. So a very, a very slow to render judgment on, on this. But we do want to just, we say we have, we have biblical example um, and, why, and why the church has historically practiced what they've practiced there. But we shouldn't burden anyone's conscience where the Lord hasn't given us clear laws. That's helpful. Was there a hand over here? No? All right, good. Well, let's, let's, um, 
let's wrap up there and we'll, we'll, we'll finish, the, uh, finish the burial of Jesus next week and then finally get to Easter morning. The Lord be with you.